What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bedeira. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, hit the road, Jack. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Joe McCormick. How are you doing today, Jonathan? I'm well, Joe. Uh, we should mention that our co-host Lauren is out today. Oh, yeah, she is out, but hopefully she will be back with us next week. Yep. So we've mentioned uh, several times on the show before that we're based in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, the ATL what what. I very much love living in Atlanta, actually. I, I, I have a lot of love for the city, but there is one thing I do not love about this city. I Does it involve putting metal plates onto... <laughs> Onto the road so that when you drive over it, it is the most jarring experience ever? Well, it's the broader concept of driving in Atlanta. Gotcha. Yeah, Uh, that's the road conditions in Atlanta range from passable to I think Mad Max might have been here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I guess they do that in other cities. I don't know. Yeah, sometimes like there's been road work and and it's like they, they, I don't know, they were like, oh, there's some huge holes in the road. We'll just put some tissues over the top of it. The tissues in the form of like a giant steel plate bolted down to the road. Yeah, we've we've had, um, there are a few major roads in Atlanta that get a lot of traffic that have had this issue. So it got us to thinking... What if we talked about the future of roads? Is this what we're destined to be, you know, to, to, to live with for the rest of our lives? Are we going to get to a point where we have jetpacks and flying cars, but the roads are still covered with potholes and steel plates? <laughs> you know, it could be that that probably depends on the will of our legislators. I, so, I, I so, so pester your local politicians. <laughs> but anyway, no, uh, I do think it would be worth talking about roads, which yeah. is what we're going to do today, because we've talked about the future of transportation lots of times. We've sure. talked about flying cars, mm-hmm. about electric vehicles, fuel cell vehicles, mm-hmm. hybrid vehicles. 
vehicles. Uh, we've talked about mass transit. I mean, there's a ton of room to grow mm-hmm. uh, with the future of transportation. But one thing we haven't really talked about is the transportation infrastructure itself, the roads and the bridges that, mm-hmm. that get us from place to place. And you might think, okay, I mean, how can roads really change? So basically, you just need like a flat surface with some lane markers indicated. There you go. I mean, right. w- what else do you need to change? There's actually a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot that, you know, and there's going to be a kind of a common theme as we go throughout this podcast. And the, the one of the major uh, marks of that common theme is that any attempt to make big changes to the road system is going to require an enormous investment of time and money and resources because it's an established system. And sure, we spend a lot of money and time maintaining that system, but the thought of truly upgrading it is, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, and the, the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, at what point do we say, hey, no, this is a, it is a big deal, but it's worth it to go through that process. Right. And I think we should get the big tuna in the basket out of, <laughs> that's an expression I big use now. Big tuna in the basket. You're we right. should get the big tuna in the basket okay. out of the basket first. Right. And I, I know you're sitting there at home thinking solar roadways. Solar right? freaking roadways as the video repeatedly <laughs> announced. You, did you ever see that video, the solar freaking roadways video? I don't think so. I mean, I read their, their fundraising campaign yeah. stuff. So when, uh, there, there's a we should we should say solar roadways is the name of a proposed system of road redesign in right. America to to end up uh, instead of using asphalt for roadways using solar panels that have been specifically engineered to withstand the 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 abuse that a road would encounter on its day to day life. This right? blew up on the internet last year. Yeah, um, it might have even been two years ago when it first uh, was being mentioned. But at any rate, you had uh, this couple who had come up with this this notion, and they had plotted out the kind of the electronic uh, uh, blueprint that would be necessary to make it work, and were very optimistic about how it could um, be feasible, right? Both from a physics standpoint and an economical standpoint. Although the economic side was largely obfuscated i would say uh the the there seemed to be a belief that the cost of solar panels would uh drop dramatically due to an increase in manufacturing which is generally true but you have to get there first right it doesn't magically happen at any rate the video that went along with the fundraising campaign had an extremely enthusiastic narrator who extolled the virtues of solar freaking roadways <laughs> and it was done almost like uh, like if you see those old, those commercials for the monster truck rally, Sunday, <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, solar freaking roadways, that kind of thing. Um, and th- if you think about it, like if you can make this system work, there are some legitimate cool things you could really do with it. One, you could change the road system from being just this passive network of pathways into an active electricity generating system. You could power cities with the roads. Sure. Well, I mean, if you look out over a hot highway in the summer, you will notice that, huh, you know, there's a lot of energy going to waste when you see the mirage coming up off the road in the distance. That's heat. That's all just entropy. That's wasted energy. That could, that solar energy that's going into being absorbed by the road and then radiating back outward as heat could potentially be harnessed. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's enticing. It makes you think, oh man, what could we do with all that energy? Of course, you could say the same thing about the energy that falls all over the entire surface of the earth, over the oceans and the deserts and. Everywhere. I mean, this is the, that's the whole premise of solar energy in the first place is to take a surface that is going to be exposed to solar radiation and cover that surface with solar cells, which are able to absorb solar radiation and then convert that into electricity. I mean, that's the whole premise. And the, really the question comes down to, does it make sense in this area? In other words, is the, the uh, expense of purchasing and installing solar panels in that area going to uh, 
uh, economically makes sense. Are you going to receive enough sunlight in that particular area to generate the electricity you actually require, or is all this effort going to be for naught? Like if I if I cover an area in solar panels, but that area rarely gets sunlight, then I haven't done myself any favors, right? Yeah. So there are a lot of these questions, but the the general thought was, well, the roads cross all over the United States. That that was the sort of the the area that the fundraising campaign was focusing on was the United States of America. So roads go all over the U.S., and a lot of those roads are receiving tons of sunlight, even when you factor in the fact that that sometimes there are cars on the road that block sunlight from happening, from hitting the the road. Uh, but the idea was, oh, you got this distributed way of generating electricity, a distributed power generation system, which is incredible it's it it would be amazing to be able to do this as opposed to having uh you know regionalized power generation right yeah yeah sure i mean it's easy to get enthusiastic for this idea yeah it's like uh solar roadways apply directly to the roadways right <laughs> uh you know i didn't get that joke for the longest time until i can't remember what channel finally had those um was it is it head on is that what it is i can't yeah, remember. Yeah. apply directly to forehead yeah anyway um at any rate, so, so the idea being that this would generate electricity, that that'd be a huge benefit right there, where you're you're turning something that normally would not be doing anything other than providing a pathway into power generation, but also uh, you could have other cool features embedded in it. Sure. Well, this would make the roadways inherently electronic, which yes. would give you the potential to make them not just passive and static, but to make them active and reactive. Right. So one of the best features I've actually heard about the proposition of solar roadways is the idea of dynamic uh, lane shifting. Right, yes. So I live off a street in Atlanta that has uh, a reversible lane. And this is DeKalb Avenue in Atlanta. It's, <laughs> now you've given my address. No, oh, no, no, you haven't. You've just given a road I live off. It's perfectly fine. I'm it's giving a you long time. road. It's a long road. Well, yes. yeah. So it has it has <laughs> in some stretches a center lane. Yes, that either has an arrow over it or and an X. Full of evil magic. Yeah, it is full of evil magic because not everyone knows that a reversible lane when it's an X, it means you don't get in that lane. It means that the traffic that's coming towards you, oncoming traffic, has that lane. Yeah, and they change it. Throughout the day. So in uh, the morning, when there's a lot of traffic heading into the city, the two lanes that head into the city or the, you know, the middle lane is that go is now allowing traffic to head toward the city. And in the afternoon, when a lot of traffic is moving away, the middle lane allows traffic to move away from the city. And they they show this with that X or arrow. The problem is a lot of people don't know how that works and they or they don't recognize it or they think the middle lane is actually a turning lane so at any intersection you might see someone in the wrong lane of traffic it's it's as if they're going the wrong way down a one-way street yeah you know to designate this you're looking at signs hanging above the road because obviously we can't change the lines that are painted on the road they're all series of of dashed lines mm-hmm. But what if instead of painted lines, you had embedded LEDs inside these solar panels and they just took a little bit of electricity that was being generated by the solar panels and they projected light so that you would see the division of the street right there on the street. So in other words, you could actually dynamically change those traffic patterns by changing the lanes as you're driving it might say all right you need to move over to the right so you you move over into the right lane and then eventually the lanes change so that the traffic is being directed in whichever direction it needs to be and you could do it as many times throughout the day as was warranted based upon traffic patterns Mm -hmm. you could also set up warnings for things like let's say that there has been an accident you could actually have warnings displayed on the street itself to let drivers know about it so that they can slow down and make sure that they don't make the situation worse. Mm-hmm. Um, there were even suggestions that there could be some sort of pressure sensitivity. I don't know how you would do this without it, the road constantly going crazy, but that there could be some pressure sensitivity uh, where if an animal were to start crossing the street, <laughs> uh, a, a, an alert would pop up or the panels around where the animal is stepping would light up, thus giving drivers an, a, a visual indication that there is something obstructing the road and preventing a potential accident. Okay, now we have already stated that the cost of installing 
millions of solar panels to replace highways could be prohibitive, and we'll get more into the details in a second. Mm -hmm. But once you're adding all of this functionality, it sounds like you're increasing the cost again and again and again. Yeah. Well, and and that's not the only cost, too. I mean, there's another feature that would also add some some cost to this. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So uh, there, I don't know, Joe, you and I, we don't deal with this very much, but there are some places where sometimes water gets cold and then it gets hard and slippery and turns into this ice stuff, which we normally find in tea. Ah. But it can get on the ground, too, not just in tea, and that's when things get tricky. Oh, no, this happened in Atlanta. Yeah, a couple and we'll, of- <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that situation a little bit later. I am yeah. obviously being facetious. It does happen in Atlanta. We get ice storms here in the city occasionally. In fact, we get ice more frequently than we get snow. And um, uh, But the one of the ideas that the solar roadways people were – or one of the features they were claiming the roads would have, it's, they'd be able to have some sort of heating element in them. And again, you would dedicate some electricity to the heating element to raise the temperature of the roads so that ice would not form on the roads themselves, uh, which, again, that would be a great feature, right? So you would have dynamic streets that could alert you to changing conditions, that could route traffic in a way to make it as efficient as possible, that were generating electricity and were melting ice. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. If I could snap my fingers and make that a reality, I probably would. Yeah. And here's where we start running into some some problems. So. There have been a lot of folks who have raised some criticism of the solar roadways plan mm-hmm. uh, for for various reasons. Uh, one the, is the most common criticism I saw was cost. Yeah, that would be the big one. Uh, solar panels are not cheap, so um, even if you were to mass manufacture them, at least in the beginning, they would be pretty expensive per panel. They're talking about using these hexagonal panels, right? And you would place them together, kind of like a giant Settlers of Catan, uh, for the entire nation to drive on. Uh, so there's that. Uh, My street will trade you sheep for your bricks. Something along those lines, yes. And you know, obviously, asphalt is something that can kind of... Uh, it can Its form can, can curve along with the landscape. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, that's another issue is that you've got these solid panels that don't do that. They don't have flex to them. So that, that causes an issue. So that means that even if you have the panels, let's say that you've, you've paid for the panels. That's, that's awesome. You've got them. You're ready to put them down. Well, now you also have to pay for the labor, which would probably be the, it would dwarf the cost of the solar panels because you, you have to rip up the infrastructure you have, the mm-hmm. roads you have and install new infrastructure which would be the solar panels and the channels necessary for the cabling to go along the roads. Because these panels are are not just magically beaming electricity. They have to channel, you know, they, they use cables to uh, to run electricity through to the power grid, which also means you would have to have some sort of power processing s- uh, s- system, like, you know, maybe boxes that would be along every few hundred feet along the side of the roads, to which the power grid could attach and the electricity generated by these roads could then flow into the power grid. Otherwise, where's that, where's that electricity going? I mean, do you just put batteries everywhere? I mean, what, it doesn't make sense, right? Mm-hmm. So then, uh, you've got that expense, the, the labor expense. That labor is going to be additionally um, more expensive because they're going to have to start g- leveling more sections of the road if you want these hexagons to line up properly. Uh, obviously you would not want there to be like sharp, uh, peaks from where two, two different panels are meeting over a little, you know, lump in the road or a hill or whatever. Yeah. So that's going to be really expensive. It would take a huge amount of time too. So it's one thing to repave a certain stretch of road and you have to route traffic around it. Anyone who's had to, you know, work in any kind of, of, large urban area where there's road work knows how frustrating that can be. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine if you're, con- you're, you are determined to completely replace that road, that, in- that entire highway with solar panels. You, you would have to figure that out. This would take huge amounts of civil planning to figure out how to route traffic around a, an area that is now going to be off limits while the existing road is dug up and the new foundation is put down and the new panels are installed. 
It's just it's just such a huge undertaking that it's hard to imagine how you could do it in a way that would be economically viable. Yeah. When I encounter this idea, the main question I have is, okay, so I understand the proposed benefits of being able to have like adaptive lane shifting and 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 warnings and messages on the road and right. stuff like that. But if you're just talking about generating power, in what way is solar roadways better than just having a bunch of solar farms out in the desert? Yeah, that's an excellent question because on top of the expense that we've already covered, solar panels have a lifetime, right? They they get gradually they, – they start to – degrade and you need to replace them. Mm-hmm. So that's an ongoing expense. It's not just the initial installation. You would have to continuously spend money to replace solar panels. Right. And solar panels are not perfectly efficient. They don't capture all the energy from the sun. They are not able to convert all of that energy to electricity. The electricity they do generate is, you know, per solar cell, it tends to be in the, you know, like the milliamps level, we're talking tiny amounts of electricity. So, yeah, collectively, you'd be generating a lot, but individually, they generate very little. Oh, sure. I mean, I'm not against getting lots of our energy from solar. I think right. as much as we could, that well, would be great. But, like, why is this any better than just having a bunch of solar it's, farms? It's not. Yeah. It's not. And that's the problem is that because in order for you to make the, let's say that you got the best solar cells on the planet, all right, or technically orbiting the planet because those tend to be the ones that are the highest quality or the ones that we put into space. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say that you get the, the highest ones. Well, you're, you're going to have to protect those, right, from being driven over constantly, right, all so day long. Right, so you need long. like some thick glass that would be supportive of the weight of a truck. Yeah, so thick tempered glass, which is going to limit the amount of solar energy that can get to your solar cells. So you're already taking a hit there. Plus, you've got all these other things to worry about, like dust, dirt, oil, grime, uh, you know, scratches, all this rubber, all this kind of stuff that could end up uh, further making the solar cell less efficient in capturing solar energy, let alone converting it to electricity. With all that in mind... There are very few advantages of using this stuff to pave a road rather than using a giant solar farm where you don't have those features. You typically don't see giant semi-trucks driving over solar farms. (laughs) It doesn't happen. Yeah. But that's exactly what they do on highways. So a lot of people have said, why would we ever invest in this? I mean, it's the, the features are cool. But they're not cool enough to justify the expense and the the labor necessary to make it happen. If you, you know, it only makes sense if you've already exhausted all the other surfaces upon which we could put solar panels. Um, and we haven't done that. I mean, we haven't really put solar panels on that much here in the United States, you know, c- comparatively speaking. And if we had reached that point, then you might say, all right, well, let's. Let's turn the roads into that, too. Yeah. Because. uh, Yeah, we don't even have solar panels on all our roofs yet. Right. Why do we put them on the roads? Exactly. So, I mean, there are also other questions like would these would these roads remain uh, active and and uh, and effective for any length of time? Obviously, roads are are subjected to huge forces. Uh, repeatedly. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it may be that some cells would get knocked out of alignment, which means they could be disconnected and perhaps no longer generating electricity or able to display the, uh, the lights. You know, they might not be communicating <laughs> anymore. You've effectively got a dead pixel in your road. Yeah. And while the design was, de- was meant to make it easy to replace solar cells, if that happens frequently, then you've got a huge headache, right? As you're constantly having to send crews out to either reconnect or replace dead solar cells. Uh, and, you know, stuff like ice heaving, which is when uh, ice, you know, when, when water freezes, it expands. It's one of the few things that actually does that. I don't believe you. <clears throat> try it. <laughs> here's, here's an experiment to try at home. You fill up a cup of water, uh, and then put it in the freezer and then observe the level after it is frozen and you will see it is higher than what you filled it up to. Yeah. Um, and since ice expands, it can push stuff apart. Right. So if the water gets in between the solar cells and then freezes, even despite the 
you know, the heating element. Sometimes the weather can overpower a system. Like, it does happen if it's, if it's intense enough. Then you could end up with broken connections that way too. Mm-hmm. So the, ultimately what it comes down to is all of these problems are revolving around the expense and the efficiency, neither of which are at a level that makes a lot of critics feel comfortable with this approach. Yeah, I, I think all these criticisms are valid, though at the same time, we don't want to sound too down on the idea, like discouraging people from trying. I, I just think that judging from the sort of expert criticisms that we've read, it doesn't seem like this is a very fruitful way to go forward with with harvesting solar energy for our grid needs. Yeah, I would I would look to using more of the the sur- flat surfaces that are not constantly driven upon as the potential uh you know solar gatherings mm-hmm. places in a in an urban environment rather than on the roads themselves. I think uh, maybe a parking lot, but even then you have to like uh, I would experiment with a parking lot well, first. Well, I mean what I would say is why not above the parking lot instead of on the ground? I mean, there are already a bunch of parking lots like this where you have parking spaces lined out, you know, out in the sun exposed, but above them are sort of like shades or mm-hmm. rooftop uh, type structures that are sort of leaving the parking lot partially covered and those have solar panels on top. Yeah, the... um and that provides the nice extra benefit of keeping your car cool in the right. summer so that you don't have to crank the AC up to 11 when you get back in the car or melt. Yeah, the the example I've always seen about using it in the parking lot was again for those dynamic conditions, which yeah. which is neat. You know, it's it is interesting. I don't know that that's the killer feature that justifies the incredible expense and the possible ongoing maintenance expense of uh, of switching to this sort of thing. So uh, I, I agree. I think it would make more sense to have a covered parking area that has solar cells on top of it to capture solar energy rather than incorporating it into the, the parking lot itself, especially considering that if the place is busy and it's open during the day, then cars are blocking the sun from reaching the solar cells in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it'd be one thing if we were all nocturnal, <laughs> and if we were nocturnal, then obviously, you know, co- coding public places with solar cells would make sense because a lot of people would all be in bed, right? You, the, it would be the ideal time to have uh, uh, to generate electricity. But since we're all, you know, awake during the day, or most of us, the vast majority of us, and we're active, then it's probably not a great idea. Yeah. So that seems to me to be a bust as far as the roads of the future. But there are other things that could be really important, right? Sure. Well, you just mentioned a lot of stuff about the maintenance of roads. Yeah. And this is another area where cost is a big factor. So road and bridge maintenance is serious business, especially here in America. Roads see a lot of wear and tear. Fixing them costs society a ton of money, and not fixing them probably costs even more. Very true. So according to a 2014 survey by Trusted Choice and the Independent Insurance Agents and Brokers of America, and just to note, this is like an insurance industry survey, so it's possible the results aren't 100% objective. But, right. There uh, might be some bias. Right. But just uh, just as a starting point for numbers, but between 2009 and 2014, they say that Half of all car owners experienced vehicle damage as a result of potholes. Anyone driving just, down Ponce de Leon yeah. Avenue is probably going to say, yes, I, yeah. I agree with the study. <laughs> so just potholes. I mean, they can yeah. damage the sidewall of your tire. Sure. Or even if they're bad, they can actually damage the wheel itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and according to the same survey, quote, poor road conditions ended up costing the consumers in the insurance industry more than $27 billion during the five-year period of the study. So that was 2009 to 2014. Mm. So that's a lot of money uh, as a result of just damage caused by problems with the road, problems that could be fixed, but there's so much road out there. Right. And then, <laughs> you know, it's just hard to get to these problems. And and so you let's say that, you know, you're a driver and you have to get from point A to point B and between point A and point B is a crappy road with potholes in it. And as a result of having to take that route, your car gets a bit banged up. Who ends up paying for that? Oh, yeah. Well, that's another thing. So 
either way, this is costing society money. Yeah. So they, they said in the survey that 31% of the, the car owners who had damage from potholes got a, a claim filed with their insurance company. So that means the insurance company is possibly paying out. Right. And it's not like that's just coming out of their pockets. They're increasing the rates that you pay to them in order to make up that money. Right. Uh, and then another 65% of the people said that they just paid out of pocket. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, often makes sense if you have minor problems with your car, you don't want to involve the insurance company and have them punish you for it. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> What a crazy thing insurance is, right? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we could do a whole episode on that. That'll be later. <laughs> right. And then they said this was funny. 3% said local authorities paid. So essentially, so like, like you could, they you went could to the, petition they went the to city the state and said, "Oh, there was a pothole. Give me money." Right, like they, you know, I literally cannot get to where I need to go without taking your road. Your road is broken. Therefore, since you are the entity in charge of your road, you owe me for that that expense. <laughs> uh, hey, if it works, of course, you know, you could argue that this is also one of those cases where, uh, is similar to the insurance company. It may be that a a political. Uh, entity, whether it's city or state or whatever, mm-hmm. says, well, it's true. We do need to do maintenance on this road. So in order to do that, let's raise taxes. Yeah, well, and the U.S. government spends a lot of money maintaining and repairing roads. Like so. how much is a lot of money? A lot. In 2011, the U.S. Federal Highway Administration, they said they committed $31.8 billion to improve U.S. highways and bridges. And of the $31.8 billion, about 42% or about 13.4 billion was quote committed for improvements designed to maintain or preserve existing roads and bridges such as road reconstruction and resurfacing bridge replacements and bridge repairs so that's just making fixes to existing road surfaces and bridges to prevent them from causing damage falling apart gotcha and in uh, then that was just the uh the federal highway administration mm-hmm. In 2011, the same year, the the state uh, transportation departments within the United States spent a total of 113 billion wow. on highway improvements, uh, including some federal funds. And of that money, 35.5 percent, or about 40.2 billion, was again it was spent on uh, preservation, construction, roadway resurfacing, bridge repairs, the same kind of stuff, just fixing the the deterioration of road conditions. Wow. Oh, and on top of that, the states also spent around $30 billion on stuff including, quote, routine maintenance of homes and bridges. So that was in addition also to highway safety and law enforcement. Right. So we are talking – and this you know, this is obviously the United States, but there are you – know, other countries obviously also have to pay huge amounts in order to maintain the road systems. So this is a significant amount of money just to keep things in drivable condition, yeah. right? And sometimes in – Barely drivable conditions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Your mileage <laughs> really may vary. <laughs> right. And so I, I actually couldn't find any good statistics on this, but you'd have to assume that poor road conditions like potholes, cracks, crumbling asphalt, general wear and tear also sometimes contributes to accidents and collisions. I mean, I couldn't imagine that that doesn't happen. Yeah. I, I, I'm i with you. I mean, that to me makes sense. Like, clearly – if there is something that can potentially, you know, damage your vehicle, it could also potentially lead to an accident. Right. Uh, so what if we could pave our roads with surface materials that don't need so much maintenance? And what if we could build our bridges with materials that don't need so many repairs and, and reconstruction? So are you talking adamantium? Like <laughs> we just we just take Wolverine's claws and turn that into bridges and roads? Why just his claws? I'm saying you should take Wolverine, <laughs> liquefy him, and then put him under a steamroller on the highway. Magneto has tried on multiple occasions, and that guy has proved to be wily. You know, Wolverine applies in multiple ways, actually, yeah, because... to what I'm about to say, because adamantium is very strong, but no, that's not what we should do. Instead, we should take Wolverine's other special feature, which is that he is self-healing. Yeah, he has a healing factor. Yeah. A mutant healing factor. So we're talking about materials that, while they're they're not so resilient that they resist all damage, rather they are designed to heal 
damage. Sure. Uh, and scientists and engineers have been working on so-called self-healing materials for years. It's actually a, it's a big field in materials research these days. And it's pretty cool, yeah. Yeah, it's really cool, actually. Uh, so one example is a guy named Hank Yonkers of Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And he's been designing a, a version of self-healing concrete. And the way it works is pretty cool. So distributed throughout the concrete mixture, there are tiny capsules of bacteria and some calcium lactate. And these bacteria, like one kind would be uh, Bacillus pseudofirmus. Interesting. Pseudofirmus. Like yeah. Like fake firm. I don't know. Kind of like my mattress. It's the opposite of true firm. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the, the, there are these little microorganisms that produce biogenic calcite or, or sort of like limestone mm-hmm. when they eat calcium lactate, the stuff that I said was distributed in the concrete. So right. when cracks or gaps form in the concrete, the air and the water get into the concrete and activate the bacteria. And then the bacteria in turn start munching on the calcium lactate and they convert it into calcite which is the common part of sedimentary rocks like limestone that can sort of seal back up the crack that has formed. Gotcha. So it, so it's almost like uh, imagine that you have a caulking gun and you have to squirt caulk into something, except this is material that's doing it by itself because of the bacteria and the and the fuel, the food essentially, yeah. that it consumes to generate this stuff. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And they said, you know, that versions of this could have bacteria that lie dormant and stay alive for like 200 years. So this could have a, a very good longevity to it, actually. Mm-hmm. And this is talking about concrete, mostly in the context of self-healing buildings. The media coverage I've seen of this has been talking mostly about buildings. But there are roads that are concrete roads. I mean, we tend to think of uh, roads as being asphalt paved, but asphalt is like a, you know, it's asphalt concrete. It's like bitumen enhanced with a a traction enhancer. Right, some Uh, sort of aggregate in there. But yeah, there are straight up concrete roads. Now, I'm not sure if this type of self-healing concrete would be appropriate for road surfaces. But the general principle of self-healing material research could be applied to all kinds of road surfacing materials in the future. Right. And this obviously would be really good for stuff like bridges as well. Yeah, certainly. So uh, this is a a type of self-healing material that tends to be uh, categorized as embedded healing agents. Yes. Uh, So the embedded healing agents in this case being the bacteria and the the food that it eats in order to create this this, uh, limestone-like material. Um, the there are downsides to embedded healing agents sure the big one being that once it's used up you, you can't he, you can't heal it anymore yeah and typically when something receives some sort of damage uh, even after you have patched it it's still weaker than what it was before the damage mm-hmm. so it may be that this kind of thing will preserve the lifespan or it will uh, elongate the lifespan of a, a road but it would not make it indefinitely able to heal itself. There are other types of of, uh, research into self-healing materials that are trying to mimic the way organisms that have a circulatory system heal in that when I break a bone, which, gosh, it happens so frequently now, (laughs) uh, I don't have little capsules in my bones that are, once there's damage to the bones, they spring into action and and stitch it all together. No, you have osteoblasts. Yeah. So the way that the healing system works in organisms that have uh, circulatory systems is that essentially your body sends the stuff that needs to get to a specific location when it needs to get there. Hmm. Uh, in other words, it's it's kind of a response system like, you know, let's send the 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 various uh, you know, ingredients needed to heal this damage right now because damage has happened. So what if you could design material that does the same thing? And it's essentially, you know, simulating a vascular system. Um, in fact, uh, the materials tend to be called microvascular materials where you build in a, a delivery system. It's like it's li- a road with veins. It, essentially, yeah. You would have to have like tiny little tubes that would allow uh, the healing material to go to the specific location where it needs to patch whatever the damage is. There, there's research into building materials like this, typically for things, again, like bridges and buildings, but also you could potentially do it with roads. The issue, though, there are a couple. Obviously, it's a more complex system. 
It also is slower than the embedded healing agent system. I mean, there the the actual healing agent is located at the point of damage because the it's distributed throughout the material, right? Whereas in this case, you might have the healing agent that you have to send to the location through this circulatory system, these series of tubes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just like the internet. Uh, but it takes time for it to get there. So it's not something that immediately starts to heal the damage. And if it, whatever it was that caused the damage is an ongoing issue, it may be that the damage is getting worse and worse and is doing so at a rate faster than what the uh, system is able to compensate for. So in other words, you could send healing stuff through this microvascular system but it may not get to where it needs to be in in amounts large enough for it to reverse or 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 slow that damage to any appreciable amount. Yeah. So it has its own drawbacks, in other words. Yeah. Uh, but whatever method you use, I do think that self-healing materials are going to be a very strong place to look in the future of roads because yeah. of this this maintenance cost and the cost of not maintaining roads. Like it just benefits society so much to have roads that don't have maintenance problems. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you if even if you say this material is going to be much more expensive than your average asphalt is, if you look at it and you say, all right, well, what is the lifespan for this material? How long is it going to be useful? Mm -hmm. Uh, Not just in how long will it be effective with the bacteria living 200 years, for example, but how long. Uh, do we estimate it would take before we have to replace this stuff? If it's long enough, it may be that economically it balances out because we already know how much we're spending just on regular roads. Right, on the damage caused to vehicles through road problems and then the amount we spend fixing the roads. Right, so it may be that we sit there and say, okay, this totally makes sense for us to make this investment because in the long run, it's going to save us money. Yeah. Um Another interesting thing, one of the ones that we wanted to come back and, and revisit, you know, we talked about in the solar frickin' roadways <laughs> about the, the anti-icing uh, measures, the idea of a heating element that could keep ice from forming on roads. But that's not the only anti-icing, and uh, there are places that could really use it, like our hometown. Sure. Well, I mean, what happened in Atlanta in 2014 was suddenly the city became like the laughing stock of the entire country. Because two inches of snow completely shut down the city. But to be fair, that snow was icing over. Yeah. Atlanta is a city with lots of hills on it. Yeah. We're not used to these conditions. And we don't have the equipment necessary to to clear roads uh, on any kind of, uh, you know, reasonable time frame. Yeah. So if we lived in a place where we got snow and ice more frequently we would have we would have invested in the yeah. infrastructure we'd have to, salt trucks going by all the time yeah plows. And, it, and there were also issues of the that the, you know the city was was uh, blamed for not taking precautionary measures early enough to prevent this from happening so what if we could design roads that had precautionary measures built into them so that it, it wasn't an issue of oh we didn't send the salt trucks out on time right well there are such things as anti-icing technologies, and they actually already exist today. There, there are technologies that you can apply to the road surfaces in your area that will respond to freezing conditions mm-hmm. so that you don't have to go out and apply the de-icing agent. It's already built into the road, but they're not awesome today. Yeah. And that, that's one area that I think we could see expansion in the future is anti-icing technologies getting better than they are. So what are the technologies today? Well, essentially we're talking about chemicals that uh, it's a combination. It's chemicals and aggregate. Yeah. So the aggregate is meant to be like this rough surface to get good traction. Right. To provide better traction. Exactly. And then the chemicals are meant to uh, decrease the freezing temperature of water. Which is actually what salt does. Yeah. It's exactly what salt does. I mean, it's it's what any anti-icing chemical that's really what ultimately is going on. It's 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 making the freezing temperature of water go lower and lower so that the temperature itself has to be colder than freezing for the water to turn into ice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, typically water turns into ice at zero degrees Celsius. But if you're able to lower that, then you can 
help prevent ice from forming on roads in all but the most extreme conditions. Yeah. If if we do get to a point where the temperature is significantly low, and we saw that happen in 2014, there were some cities that reached incredibly low temperatures in 2014, uh, then it might not matter, right? In those cases, it may be that it's so cold that even with the chemicals in place, you cannot prevent the ice from forming. Yeah. But under typical conditions, like the kind that hit Atlanta in 2014, you might be able to prevent that ice from forming, and it's it's like you've salted the roads. Now, imbuing your your road system with these chemicals, you know, building that into the asphalt itself is uh, a great way of having a preventive uh, uh, anti-icing, you know, strategy. However, like the self-healing embedded agents, it's one of those that could potentially be depleted over time. So then you you might be able to have your your road be ice free for a few seasons, but it may be something that you have to look into, like how can we you know, refresh this system yeah. so that it still does it the next year. Another thing that I think is going to be really important is looking at the environmental impact of anti-icing mm-hmm. road surfaces because I'm sure there are ways of doing it that are less environmentally detrimental than others. I right. mean, if you have – uh you, you you don't want a road that just sort of exudes Freon. Yeah, you don't when, want antifreeze just bleeding out of your streets. Right, and then running off into the forests on either side of the road. Right. Uh, so what you're working on is trying to design anti-icing agents that aren't going to harm wildlife and uh, and and cause toxic conditions. Right. Yeah, it is. It is one of those things that's delicate balance, right? So uh, making sure that you have that that right balance that the chemical is going to be effective but not harmful. Also, that the aggregate itself, like you know, creating that traction is great, but as traffic continues to go across this road, it's going to wear that down. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just going to happen from the countless cars that are going to c- cross over it, uh, which means it's going to be less and less effective each year. So that's also something that eventually you will have to replace. So these these uh, solutions we're looking at aren't like a permanent fix. Yeah. You know, they're they're largely things that will extend the lifetime or will extend the utility of a road, uh, particularly in what would otherwise be hazardous conditions. But they aren't, you know, it's not you do it once and you're done. It's this is stuff that would have to be uh, reapplied or maintained just as our road systems are now, but maybe not as frequently as they are now. That would be great. Yeah. And then there is one other big technology that I think actually could be one of the most interesting of all the ones we've talked about. Yeah. So we know the benefits of electric vehicles. Yep. Obviously, I mean, gas cars put out a lot of carbon emissions. They consume gasoline, uh, all, you know, which is in fact a limited resource. And there are obvious advantages to the widespread adoption of electric vehicles, but it's just not taken off <laughs> like we hoped it would. I mean, it might sometime in the near future. Yeah. Um, but the the widespread adoption of electric vehicles has been slow. There's a and there are few factors, right? One yeah. is that they tend to be more expensive. Yeah, of course. So that's that's one barrier to entry. We hope we hope the cost will come down over time and as they, more people they, buy them. They have been coming down. It's yeah. just, you know, it's again, we're very early on in the New electric vehicle adoption phase. Keeping in mind, electric vehicles actually predate the internal combustion engine style. <laughs> right. But at any rate, uh, uh, so uh, the cost is one barrier. Another one is that uh, the charging infrastructure is still being built out. Right. So if yeah. you if you want to charge your vehicle. There are more places to do that than there used to be, but still it's not like there's a gas – there's not like a charging station on every corner like there's a gas station everywhere. Right, and so you have this fear. It's sort of tied to range anxiety, but it's yeah. different. Uh, it's this fear of, well, what if I'm driving around all day and I can't find a place to plug in my electric vehicle to recharge it? Well, I mean we live in a world now where – we're used to the feeling of looking at your phone and seeing that under 10% battery power light come on and feel that fear of, 
I'm not going to be able to use this in a very short while. I mean, that that's for some of us, depending on how old our phone is and what brand it is, that might happen every day. And then you think, well, what do you extend that? What if this happened to me in my car? What if my car was telling me, hey, buddy, you need to find a charging station because if you don't find one in the next 15 minutes, you're not going anywhere. That's the fear, right? And it, it whether it's realistic or not doesn't matter so much as if the fear is there, that's a barrier. Yeah, but what if you didn't have to find a place to plug your car in in order to recharge it? So you're looking at a future of incredibly long extension cords. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I'm talking about wireless charging for electric uh, vehicles. Inductive coupling. Oh, yes. So we've talked about inductive coupling on the show before, but we should do a real brief refresher on how it works. What, yeah. What's the concept here? All right. So uh, the easiest way of looking at it is think about one of those electric toothbrushes that has the little charging station and you put the, you know, the, the, the toothbrush stands on top of it like it's a little, just a little base. And then it charges that way. It doesn't plug into anything. There are no contacts or anything. You just have to have the one device on top of the other one and it charges. Here's what's going on. We've talked about electromagnetism a lot, this relationship between electricity and magnetism. If you run uh, an electric current through a coil of wire, you generate a magnetic field. And the more coils you have, the bigger the magnetic field is, the more you amplify that magnetic field. Yeah. You put a second coil of wire within that first magnetic coil of wire's magnetic field, the magnetic field will induce electricity to flow through that second coil of wire. So you've got the... Coil of wire one, you run electricity through it, generates a magnetic field. Coil of wire two comes into, into, within that magnetic field, electricity is induced to flow through the second coil of wire. Um, if you were to do this with enough power, you could generate quite a bit of electricity running through that second coil. And if you connected that second coil to something useful, like either an electric motor or preferably to a battery, you could have electricity power that or charge it in the case of the battery. So if you had a vehicle that had this inductive uh, coupling kind of system in it, essentially it has a big coil running through it that then leads to the vehicle's battery. And then you had, you know, an infrastructure that had similar coils that have power running through it, generating this magnetic field. You could keep a, a charge running through your car's coil, thus continuously charging your battery. Pretty amazing. And this is something that actual researchers are working on, like yeah. the idea of how you can design cars that can receive a charge and design charging stations underneath roads that can charge cars without the car having to sit there right on top of the thing. Yeah. Now, we've seen some where they have been designed where a vehicle just sits on top of it, right? Sure. Yeah. One example would be like an electric bus. Yeah. And when the bus pulls up to a bus stop where they know it's going to be stationary for some amount of time uh, pretty frequently, underneath the road in that bus stop, there's a charging station. And it, right. it induces this current, uh, creates the magnetic field, and recharges the bus's battery a little bit. Right. And uh, and so the bus doesn't have to you know, come go offline throughout the day and have another bus come on while it charges. It's constantly charging so it can last as long as it needs to. Sure, but ideally what you would be able to do is have roads that charge you whether you're moving or standing still no matter where you are. Right, which means that you would have to have a series of these uh, inductive coupling uh, coils underneath the road. You couldn't just have it in one spot because as soon as you moved out of the magnetic field, you're no longer getting that uh, electricity induced to flow through the coil of your vehicle. So you would have to have these lining the roads, essentially. Yeah. Either underneath or you could do it on the side. It doesn't have to be directly under it. Sure. You just have to be within range of wherever the magnetic field is. And, of course, the more power you or the more coils you have, really, the bigger the magnetic field. So if you do a lot of coils, you could have a pretty big magnetic field. Uh, we don't really know what that might do to everything else. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you have a pacemaker, you know, I don't know. Yeah, or, or it may <laughs> it may interfere with electricity electronic devices in the vehicle itself. In fact, there's a lot of study that's going into, you know, would inductive coupling interfere with other systems on the car? Because obviously you don't want that to happen either. Sure. Uh, but there have been, there's been research at Stanford, for example, about how, uh, how many would it take and how uh, could a car continue to charge its battery even if it's moving at highway, highway speeds? Yeah. How much charge did they get? 
on that experiment. Uh, Ten kilowatts is the amount of, of electricity they were able to uh, to transfer over with ninety seven percent efficiency. Okay. Yeah, ninety seven percent of the electricity they were trying to transmit was actually working. So uh, this was, by the way, all done in computer simulation. I yeah, say. yeah. Not practical. This was <laughs> computer simulation, but they said. Even moving at highway speeds. But that's not just like somebody dreamed it. I mean, they are scientists. They know what they're doing. Yeah, they're actually, you know, the numbers are adding up is what we're saying. But, you know, it could be that there's something that would interfere with that in a real world setting. Sure. Obviously, you have to, you know, you can't just rely that a simulation is a perfect, uh, you know, perfect representation of reality. But but it's promising because it could mean that if you had a highway that had these uh, these devices in them, or this, essentially this series of, of coils of wire underneath it, and you were driving an electric vehicle, your vehicle would consistently being would consistently be charged as you drove it. In fact, there were people at the Stanford study who said you could, in theory, take your car out of your garage at a low charge, and when you come back home because of the roads being this way, it would actually be charged higher than when you left the house. That's amazing, and there are a few things I want to say about this. One of them is that obviously this, like the solar roadways thing, would have to be a huge infrastructure investment. Right. But somehow, actually, this strikes me as perhaps more worthwhile as a huge infrastructure investment than trying to turn our roads into solar grids. Well, for one thing, you're talking about not, you know, we don't know how much electricity such a a system would generate with Solar panels, right? We right. we suspect it's less than what we're being told under the solar freaking roadways thing. Um, it's probably you know because of, because of the multiple issues we brought up. Yeah. So we don't know from an energy and economics perspective if it makes sense. However, getting cars off of gasoline would be huge. Yeah. Right. So that's enormous already. Uh, being able to keep them charged in you know indefinitely as long as they're on the road is huge because there's no need to. Um, you don't have that fear anymore that you're not going to be able to get to where you need to go. Yeah, there's actually another thing that I think is sort of like a, a virtuous piece of feedback from this, which is that if you could have cars continuously charge as they move along the road, you could probably reduce the size of electric vehicle batteries, which right. is one of the biggest problems with electric vehicles as they are. I mean, what percent of the weight of an electric car right now is just its battery. Right. And it's by, pretty big, right? And These by, things are massive. And by reducing the weight, you don't need as strong of a of a, an electric motor to, right. to propel that vehicle. I mean, it actually, there's a lot of trickle-down stuff here that would be of huge benefit. So factoring all that in, I agree. I think that this would be a more... Uh, I think this would pay off more than the solar roadways approach. I also think it would still be such an enormous undertaking that it's hard for me to imagine it happening unless we got to a point where like it was a we were in a really bad situation yeah. and that we had to make this kind of decision i wish that that weren't the case i wish yeah. we would just say oh well this is worth doing let's do it now and that will save us a lot of heartache in the future. Uh, keeping in mind, obviously, that however you generate your electricity may still be contributing to other issues, right? Like if it's all coming from coal-firing plants, we've said this all the time, you have to look at the big picture. Sure. Well, um, but I mean, I think even coal is going to be better than just burning gasoline. But yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you'd be, you know, right now we're burning coal and gasoline. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if we'd move to just burning coal, that might be slightly better. Um, yeah. So – I, I Ideally, what we would just do is all work on bicycles all day long, like that episode of Black Mirror, and get our power that way. Right. All right. And that's all we do. Yeah. Like that, that is our job, is just riding a bicycle all day long and buying stuff. Right. Uh, well, one other thing we can talk about besides the, the possibility of creating these, you know, these wireless powered or wireless powering roads where they're powering the actual vehicles we're driving is the idea of the smart road. Uh, so you remember, like, we've you've seen the old videos from, like, the World's Fair from, you know, a century ago where the, the idea would be that we would have these intelligent roadways that would take over for us. Yeah. Like, it, it, for those who haven't seen them, one of the first... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> concepts of the the autonomous car really powered had, by computers, three hundred feet tall. Right. Uh, <laughs> one of the one of the early concepts didn't have autonomous cars being autonomous. It was the roads that were autonomous. Yeah. The cars were kind of passive. They would just get onto the road, and the road would take you to where you needed to go. Now, I I know some people still think of it that way, but I I tend to have been swayed away from the idea that the road itself or the infrastructure should be controlling the flow of traffic. I, right. I think I've been persuaded that it's better to go at a car-by-car traffic decision-making system. Well, especially if you talk about you know a failure, a failure within one vehicle, if all the other vehicles are still uh, in, you know, their own sovereign <laughs> systems, yeah. they can compensate. They can get around the ve- vehicle that's failed. Whereas if it's a road system that fails, no one's going anywhere, right? Right. So it's it's the difference between a uh, you know having your own battery power on your computer or having uh, having to plug into a a, uh, a building, and if the building's power goes out and your car, your computer doesn't have a battery, then you're out too. Yeah. But if you have a battery, you can keep going. Same sort of thing. Um, and I, I agree. I think that it it is much better to look at uh, making the car as smart as possible. But now we're starting to see some people kind of re-explore the possibility of having smart roads where we have the Internet of Things kick in, mm-hmm. where it's maybe not built into the actual road itself, but it's all part of that road infrastructure. Well, yeah, I can definitely see a sort of synergistic relationship between smart cars that are pretty smart on their own talking to an infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Mainly what I would see the role of the infrastructure to be would be providing data. So the car would be making the decisions, but mm-hmm. the road and traffic infrastructure might be feeding it information about what routes are currently clogged. Um, about, you know, uh, live updates on uh, the timing for the stoplights coming up. Right. Stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Everything from, uh, you know, dynamic traffic management to uh, possibly providing important information to, to emergency responders or mm-hmm. even to the vehicles so that the vehicles move out of the way of the emergency responders. That kind of stuff makes perfect sense. Yeah. And you could, you could achieve a lot of that with Vehicle-to-vehicle communications, and there's a lot of study in that as well. It gets a little complicated seeing as how we have all these different companies trying to develop autonomous vehicles. So making sure that they can communicate with a common language is important. But having the infrastructure be part of that would just increase that that versatility. Though then again, uh, not to poke too many holes in this, but uh, I think also you could just think about the internet as being the thing that provides the traffic data. Like it wouldn't necessarily have to be physical infrastructure in place around the area. I mean, traffic could upload data about the environment to the cloud and then your car downloads from the cloud what the other cars have told it. Sure, but if you're worrying about like maybe the traffic system. Yeah channeling traffic more efficiently, then you probably want to have some smart infrastructure there too. Yeah. So so for highways it's one thing. For surface streets where you want to get through a city, like let's, you know, imagine that again, using the reversible lanes approach. Um <laughs> you know, we talk about how uh, it's it's a dumb system. A dumb meaning that it's not dynamic or smart. It it's working on a timer. It's essentially from this hour to that hour allow two lanes of traffic to move in this direction. And from that hour to this hour, reverse that middle lane so that two lanes are are traveling in the opposite direction. That's it. It can't dynamically switch from one to the other, even if conditions change. But a smart system, one that's working with the Internet of Things, would be able to do that. Yeah. So that's kind of the idea is that uh, I think the the smart roads of the future will largely the the roads themselves will still be asphalt maybe with some of these other things that we've talked about self healing uh, materials or the the anti icing materials but otherwise it'll just be what it's always been yeah uh, but the the stuff around it the sensors and things they'll be embedded into other parts of the road infrastructure will make it a smart road. It just won't be a smart road. You know, it won't be like you dig up part of the road and you're like, oh, here's where the brain was. <laughs> At least I hope not. <laughs> so the master control program. Exactly. Yeah. So this was kind of uh, this was a fun one. Uh, we've got a, a, a video episode coming up before too long that also explores this uh, this concept. So make sure you check that out as well. And uh, Joe, you wrote that one, didn't you? Yes, I actually have not finished writing it yet. Or I have finished. I haven't 
submitted my final draft. Right. So it's 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 in process, but it'll be uh you know, Joe writes several of the episodes of the forward thinking. I write some of them and Lauren writes some of them. So it's uh this will be a Joe episode, so you'll have to check that out and see the amazing uh, visual effects our team adds to this <laughs> because they're always they're always a, they're always phenomenal. I always I love watching what our team comes up with with the animations and effects and stuff. But uh we'll definitely talk more about that in that episode. And if you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, maybe there's a topic you want to know more about, send us a message. Our email is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Twitter, Google Plus, or Facebook. At Twitter and Google Plus, we are fwthinking. Just search fwthinking in Facebook's search bar. Our messages will pop right up. You can leave us a message there. We read all of them. We look forward to hearing from you. And you'll hear from us again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.